Welcome to the For Your Soul Podcast, a podcast for your soul. Welcome to the For Your Soul Podcast. I am your host, Nelson Quintanilla, and thank you for joining me once again for today's episode. Today, I have something special planned for, for, for this episode in which I am going to be reading from a very small booklet by a professor named David F. F. Well, some of you may know him as the author of books such as God in the Wasteland and No Place for Truth. And here I have a very small book titled The Bleeding of the Evangelical Church, which he published in 1996. And in this book, he challenges evangelicalism with a disturbing analysis of its present condition. So, and according to the book's description, it says that Wells believes that we, the church, have allowed ourselves to be shaped by the popular culture whose ethos is alien to God's consciousness, to other worldliness, and to passion for biblical truth. In putting success before theology, we have produced a plague of nominal evangelicalism, which, unless reserved, leaves us headed towards the oblivion of irrelevance before God. So in other words, he's just talking about how the church, how slowly it's been embracing the things of the world and how, as a result, it's uh, much much of churches today are, are weak or dying because they, they chose to compromise biblical truth. So that being said, I'm going to read to you from the booklet. It's only about 16 pages long, but they're very short. It's not like a, it's not like a big book. Trust me, this, this probably won't take that long. Uh, and there's there's not even like multiple chapters either. It's just one. It's a it's an essay. That's all it is. All right. So uh, I hope you enjoy. And here we go. The bleeding of the evangelical church. I came to America 25 years ago, a newly minted doctor, and ready to begin a teaching ministry. Today I look back on this quarter of a century with immense gratitude. America is indeed a land of milk and honey, and I am grateful for the opportunity to serve Christ during those years and for the nourishment which I have received from the church during this time. This quarter of a century has been a time of many bright highlights, but if I am not mistaken, it is also a time of lengthening shadows in our evangelical world. We have been transformed from being an inconsequential religious player to one of the most consequent during this time, but the costs are now becoming plain. 25 years ago, evangelicals were outside the religious establishment. That establishment was made up principally of the mainline denominations, but today evangelicals have become the religious establishment. However, informally, but despite this, I believe that today we are in some peril. We have have a fight on our hands, and what we're fighting for is for our evangelical soul. And it is possible for us to gain the whole religious world while losing our own souls. I did not say this because I am one who thinks that the best is always what's in the past, that we are always in a state of decline, but, I'm sorry, and that if we want to think of golden age, we have to think of something that is behind us. I did not think that way at all. In some ways, we are today, in some ways, we today are better off than we were 25 years ago, perhaps a lot better off. And in spite of that, I believe there are matters within the evangelical world today which are seriously amiss. 
So what I would like to do in the time that I have is to look first at some of the great surface changes which have taken place during this time. And second, I want to try to look beneath the surface of those changes. And then third, I want to begin sketching out ways in which I think we might seek to change some directions. So what is the peril I see happening? And here he goes into the first set, uh, the first heading, change on the surface. What has changed most dramatically, I believe, in this last quarter of a century is that when I first arrived, we were at the end of the post-war period where evangelical faith was being doctrinally framed, and today, for the most part, it is not, or at least not obviously so. What saved the church then far more than it does now was theological conviction about its character and purpose. What shapes it now far more than ever did then is a marketing ethos. In one sense, this should not be surprising at all. Americans are nothing if not consumers, consumers of images, of relationships, and of things. You perhaps will you perhaps will have seen some of the figures that have been assembled in recent years. We have 7% of the world's population, but we consume 33% of goods and services. Every year in America, 12, 12 billion catalogs are sent out to see if some unwary consumers can be attracted. The average child watches... 20,000 advertisements on television every year, and on average day, you would see 12 to six, uh, 1,600 advertisements. And let me stop right here. And remember, this was written around, uh, when this was published in 1996, so we have tons of more advertisements now. Anyways, getting back to the, the booklet. Our, our whole society has been transformed into a consumer's heaven, and we are nothing if not a nation of buyers, thoroughly at home in and thoroughly a part of the life of commerce. We move in and out of it much like fish do through water. It is in this commerce that we live and move and have our being. So the church's willingness is to adapt to the marketing model for thinking about itself really is not remarkable. But in adapting itself to this culture, the church, far more than it was the case 25 years ago, is having its character and its purposes and the way it functions defined for it. There is nothing wrong with commerce per se, but I'm going to argue that there is something profoundly wrong in trading Christ or in that thinking religion is a commerce of the soul. Now this adaptation to this kind of culture I see taking place in three very important ways in the evangelical world. First, the churches in larger and larger numbers are adapting themselves to felt needs in their congregation much as a business might adapt to the product of a market. In other words, the church is sanctioning the idea that when someone comes in its stores, it's okay to view that person as a consumer, somebody who is going to attempt to hitch up a product to their own felt needs. The product in question, of course, are the activities, the experiences, the amenities, and the message of the church. However, what people who are coming in these church doors today are thinking about and what they want is not primarily personal salvation. What they want is a sense of personal well-being, however momentary, momentary and fragmentary that, it, that a personal, that personal sense of well-being and our churches are beginning to cater to this. I have no doubt at all that they are going to become very successful. Indeed, some are successful already and that they are going to become even more successful because marketing in America is what make the, rules, the wheels go round. They are in order, in other words, simply doing what Pepsi has done what self-help groups have done, automakers, the, mar the mar makers of jeans, the makers of movies, and what Madonna herself has done. So why shouldn't churches do this? Somebody might ask. Why would they want to be successful in the same way that Pepsi and Madonna are? 
The answer is that marketing will produce success, but not necessarily the kind that has much to do with the kingdom of God. To start with, the analogy between the business world and the world of Christ's kingdom is a completely fallacious analogy. Consumers in the marketplace have never asked to commit themselves to the product that they are purchasing as a sinner. It is to Christ in whom the belief is being invited. Furthermore, consumers in the marketplace are free to find their needs however they want to and then hitch up a product to satisfy those needs. But the church is the consumer. But the, in the church, the consumer, the sinner, is not free to define his or her needs exactly as they wish. It's God who defines our needs. And the reason for that is left to ourselves that we would not understand our needs all right because we are rebels against God. We are hostile to both God and his law and cannot be subject to either. Paul tells us, now no person going into the marketplace, going to buy a coffee pot and going to buy garden hose, engages with their innermost being in the way they are inviting sinners to do in the church. The analogy is simply fallacious. Furthermore, we would be wise to remember that it was the liberal Protestants who equated cultural success with the kingdom of God. In their case, they equated cultural success with the place where the kingdom of God was coming into being high in the high culture. We are wanting to equate marketing success with the place where the kingdom of God is coming to being in the popular culture. Our immediate forbears in the faith, however, who pioneered evangelical faith after World War II, resisted this connection between the kingdom of God and success. We would be wise if we did the same, for what success in this world is not necessarily what is true or what is right. Indeed, what is false and decadent succeeds. A church, if it, if it is really true to itself, is never going to be a worldly success. Its gospel is stupid. Many we know are called, but few are chosen. Much seed is sown, but only a little produces a rich harvest. And when Christ returns, is he going to find faith on, on the face of the earth? Is it right then for the church to prostrate itself obsequiously before the world in its sorry quest to become a going and successful enterprise? Is it right to allow sinners hostile, hostile in both their nature to God and its law to define how the church is going to do its business? I think not. So this is the first place where I see our habits as consumers entering into our world and defining how we function. There is a second place that the intrusion of the market ethos into the life of a church is having a profound effect on the way that the ministry is understood and practiced. During the last 50 years in particular, the ministry has become increasingly professionalized. Indeed, it is not coincidental that during this time, when the social status of ministers has declined and the need for them to see themselves as professionals has increased. By professionalization, I simply mean that ministers are being driven to understand themselves as specialists. Those who have a special kind of knowledge, the same way lawyers and physicians and chemists do, in other professions, specialized knowledge is used in the pursuit of acquisition and aspiration. That is to say, professionals typically have careers, trajectories of accomplishment, for which projecting and maneuvering are indispensable. Where this enters the church and where ministers begin to think of themselves in these terms and ethos results in which I believe is extremely harmful to the real interests of the church. What happens amongst other things as ministers begin to nourish and pursue private careers is that the older virtues that were once thought to be essential to the ministry are replaced by some new writers. The importance of theology is eclipsed by the clamor for management skills, biblical preaching by entertainment, softly telling godly character by engaging personality and the work of the ministry by the art of sustaining a career. I believe that these are all unhappy exchanges. There is a third place where the marketing ethos is entering. The recasting of religion 
in terms of the market is giving entrepreneurs a field day. In 1970, apart from the National Association of Evangelicals and Christianity Today, some mission organizations, some colleges and seminaries and their religious presses were virtually, there were virtually no evangelical organizations at all. Today, if you consult Melton's Directory of Religious Organizations in America, you will be dumbfounded to find that probably 40 to 50 percent of all religious organizations are evangelical and virtually all of them have been started since 1970. They are now outflanking the churches and denominations. It needs to be said immediately, of course, that many of these organizations are exercising very fine ministries and many are doing the work that the churches have not been able to do. At the same time, however, where the market principle is at work, there you will get entrepreneurs and though and through our and though our entrepreneurs have great ability in getting things started, it is also the case that sometimes if entrepreneurs are not careful, what they build is also their own personal fiefdoms. And some of that noise you hear in the evangelical world today is the noise of competing personal empires. This is what shocks Christians who come from the third world. It shocks them. This was the theme that came up repeatedly at Lausanne, the number two, the e, the International Congress on World Evangelicalization that was held in Manila in 1989. They cannot understand how we tolerate this. Competition fueled by personal ambition destroys the cooperation that should grow from our common ownership in, by Christ. It is a jungle out there, we say, of the corporate world. It is also a jungle out there in the evangelical world. So let me sum up. The market, as I understand it, is affecting both the internal ethos and the church and its external organization. Internally, it is inclining us to think of sinners as consumers, and it is driving ministers to think of themselves as professionals who have personal career careers to nourish. So they are not slow to pick up their belongings and take to the road to find better opportunities. And the market is changing the external structures of evangelicalism, most obviously by encouraging us to think that religion provides us with a field of opportunity. As significant as these things are, however, they are just the surface changes and what lies beneath this that is of rather more interest to me. Uh, next heading, changes below the surface. In 1993, a very interesting study was done which revisited George Gallup's figure of 32% of American adults who claim to be reborn. What the study did was to add to just a few modest tokens of commitment as additional tasks. In addition to asking, are you born again? They also asked, do you go to church with some regularity? Do you pray with some regularity? And do you have some minimal structure of formal Christian belief? When those tasks were added, the figure of 32% dropped to 8%. And if we were to probe just a little bit more, and if we are, and if we were first asked, are you regenerate? Second, do you have a sufficiently cogent worldview to make a difference in society? And third, do you have a sufficiently formed Christian character to want to do so? Based on some ongoing research I have seen, my guess is that the figure may be no more than 1% or 2%. What this means, my brothers and sisters, that we may have been living in fool's paradise. When Gallup produced his figures in the 1970s, this has repeated them every year ever since. It seemed like evangelicals were on a roll with such wide popular support with evangelicals that were growing. It looked as though they were on the verge of, so we were on the verge of sweeping all of our religious and cultural opponents before us. 
That is why these figures stirred much such alarm in the secular media. Why they created some heartburn in the mainstream mainline Protestant denominations, and why they produced such a little power mongering among amongst evangelicals. But it turned out to be an optical illusion. The reality is that we have to face today is that we have produced a plague of nominal evangelicalism, which has which is as trite and as superficial as anything we have seen in Catholic Europe. Now, why is this? Well, I would like to suggest that it begins with the crumbling of our theological character. I've spoken of this in my book, No Place for Truth, in terms of the disappearance of theology. It is not that theology beliefs are denied, but that they ha have little cash value. They don't matter. I liken the situation to that of a child who is in a home but who is ignored. It is not the child that has who has been adopted abducted the child is there the child is in the home but has no legitimate place in the family and again research which i have which i have conducted strongly points to the fact where this is kind of, where this kind of theological character is crumbling there the centrality of god is disappearing god now comes to test lightly and inconsequentially upon the church this however is just our own private evangelical version of what we more generally what we see more generally in a culture in a broader culture we learn that 91% of people say that god is very important to them but 66 percent go on to say that they do not believe in that in moral absolutes and 67 percent do not believe in absolute truth so god rests inconsequentially upon their lives an evangelical faith that is not passionate about truth and righteousness is a faith which is the lost cause all of that will then be living for is simply its own organizational preservation last century william james saw this as the sort of mindset at work the entire modern deification of survival, he says, with the denial of any semblance of excellence which had survived, except for the capacity of moral survival still, is surely the strangest intellectual stopping place ever. Stanley Fish, the radical deconstructionist in his latest book, says that, that there is no such thing as truth, that what we have left is power, politics, and persuasion. Given his premise, he is right, and I tell you that if we do not recover our the theological character and our sense of truth in the same way that we are all going to that all we're going to have left is power politics and persuasion those will be the only means we will be left for survival is this an, if this is an accurate analysis where are we going to start and finding new directions in a recent book the churching of america winners and losers in the religious economy think and start developed a interesting thesis just as there is a commercial economy they say so there is a religious economy that is to say there are cultural circumstances which encourage the success of some religious movements and discourage the success of others i think that they are right however there's one small section of that book that seems to have been overlooked what they say here is that regardless of how much success the culture bestows upon a religious movement, it will never survive long-term unless it has what they call a vivid otherworldliness. Without looking at evangelicals directly, they have in actual fact put their finger on our Achilles heel. For amidst all the abundance of our world and all of the accountments that go with a successful movement, a vivid otherworldliness is often conspicuous by its absence. If we cannot reverse ourselves at this point, we are headed towards the oblivion of relevance before God. So how are we going to recover a vivid otherworldliness? Perhaps it consists in many things, but I single out just two which I think are central. The lost word. First we must consider first we must recover the lost word of God. The problem is not of course 
that the Bible itself has disappeared. There are, in fact, enough Bibles in America to put one in every home. No, the problem is that we're not hearing the Word of God. It does not rest consequentially upon us. It does not cut. And it is surely one of, great, one of the great ironies of our time that in the 1970s and 80s, so much effort was put into defining inspiration and looking at what were the best words to express and protect it. All, and while all of that work was going on unnoticed by us, the church was quietly unhitching itself from the truth of Scripture and practice. Biblical, ins- biblical inspiration was affirmed, but its consequences were not worked out for our preaching. Our techniques for growing the church, our techniques for healing our own fractured selves. These all happen largely without the use of Scripture. It is as if we think that while the Bible is inspired, it is nevertheless inadequate to the task of sustaining and nourishing the 20th century church. It is almost as if God, when he inspired the word, could not see what was coming in the late 20th century. The result of this divine myopia is that he has left us with something that is inadequate to do the great challenges that we face today. If we do not recover the sufficiency of the word of God in our time, if we do not relearn what it means to be sustained by it, nourished by it, disciplined by it, and unless our preachers find the courage again to preach its truth, to allow their sermons to be defined by its truth, then we will lose right to call ourselves Protestants. We will lose our capacity to be the people of God, and we will set ourselves on a path that leads right into the old, discredited, liberal Protestantism. We have to recover a vivid otherworldliness by making ourselves once again captives to the truth of God, regardless of cultural consequences. So that is the first thing. The lost vision. Second, it will be impossible to recover a vivid otherworldliness without a recovering a fresh vision from God as holy. We today are actually on the verge of a sec... Uh, we today are actually on the verge of a fresh theological discovery of a very different kind. It is that God is centrally, centrally love and that he is only periphery and remotely holy. And in doing so, we are on the verge of standing scripture on its head. No, the holiness of God is not peripheral. It is central. And without this holiness, our faith loses its meaning entire, entirely. As P.T. Forsyth declared a century, a century ago, quote, Sin is but the defiance of God's holiness. Grace is but its action upon sin. The cross is but its victory. And faith is but its worship. End quote. And so without a compelling vision of the holiness of God, worship inevitably loses its awe. The truth of God's word loses its interest. Obedience loses its virtue. And the church loses its moral authority. And this, And it is precisely here that Modernity, which is more or less synonymous with the world in the New Testament, has made its deepest intrusion into the life of the church. Modernity has rearranged our appetites. Because of our therapeutic culture, we favor relational matters over those that are moral, the consequence of which is that God's holiness is pushed into the background and his love is brought into the foreground. Mysticism then flourishes and cognitive conviction retreats. Self-surrendered is devalued and self-fulfillment is prized. Preoccupation with character fades and fascination with personality and self-image advance. The God in whom love has replaced wrath produces a Christianity that is appealing for its civility, but one that has no serious word for a world which is racked by evil. It is a form of belief that is sympathetic, but not searching, that lends its ear, but not its revelation of the Holy One. Without the holiness of God, sin is just failure. 
but not failure before God. It is failure without the presumption of guilt, without retribution, indeed without any serious moral meaning at all. And without the holiness of God, grace is no longer grace. It is not grace from God, grace from the God who against his own holy nature, has reconciled sinners to himself in Christ. And without justification, there is no gospel. And without the gospel, there is no Christianity. So if we lose sight of the holiness of God, we lose sight of entire faith, and we lose the right to call ourselves Protestants in any recognizably historical sense. Until this is seen afresh, until this is until it enters the very innermost fibers of our being our virtue is going to be without seriousness our believing without gravity our patience without moral pungency our worship without joyful seriousness and our preaching without power and without these virtues these virtues of an historic protestant faith the church today is simply going to become just one more special interest in the world that is a wash of special interests modernity will not have its power to read rearrange our inner lives destroyed what is most lost is what most needs to be recovered. It is the unsettling, disconcerting, moral presence of God in our midst. He can no longer be the junior partner in our religious enterprises, and he can never be just an ornamental decoration upon our Christian life. It is because God now wrestles inconsequentially upon the church that the church is free to plot and to devise its success in its own way. That is why so many of our forebears in the faith will scarcely even recognize us as their children today. Today, the evangelical world is bleeding. We have lived off the accumulated capital of those who worked so hard in post-war years, and we have not renewed it. 51 years ago, Harold John Akenga addressed the National Association of Evangelicals when it was very much in its infancy. He spoke of the crisis in Western civilization and of the responsibilities evangelicals had. Let me quote from his address. And I quote, This nation in its maturity, he said, is passing through a crisis which is enmeshing Western civilization. Confusion exists on every hand. We are living in a very, very difficult and bewildering time, but few people realize what tremendous change we are undergoing. And he continued, The hour has arrived when the people of this nation must think deeply or be damned. We must recognize that we are standing at the crossroads and that there are only two ways that lie open before us. One is the road of the rescue of Western civilization by a re-emphasis on the revival of evangelical Christianity. The other is a return to the dark ages of hedonism, which powerful force is emerging in every face of our lives today, end quote. Those were prophetic words, and if I am not mistaken, we today, despite all our prosperity, have little left of what it takes to impact our secular world. That is the irony of our success. And so, may God give us the willingness to repent where we must, and may He give us again the desire to think large thoughts of Him and His truth. And may He enable us to disengage our faith from the culture in order that we might freshly re-engage the culture out of a passionate concern for truth and righteousness. This is the time when we can seek again the grace of God to descend. Let us seek His grace so that the evangelicalism that we leave behind, that which, it, that which the coming generation sees, 
is one that is filled with the excellence of the knowledge of God. Amen. And that was the, the Bleeding of the Evangelical Church by David F. Wells. If you would like to purchase the book, you can do so at banneroftruth.org. It's only two twenty five, so it's pretty cheap. And based on what I just read, you can see that it is very timely and relevant for for the church today. May God help us all. Thank you for listening to the Four Years Old Podcast. For more information, you can follow me on social media as well as my YouTube channel where I upload every episode and clip from, from the episode from the podcast. And if you would like to support the Four Years Old Podcast, you can do so at anchor.fm slash four soul slash support. Be sure to give me five stars on on, on Apple or wherever get your wherever you get your podcast, plus a written review that really helps the podcast. And until next time, this is the Four Years Old Podcast, a podcast for your soul.